Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A new initiative from Health and Human Services seeks to prevent preventable health problems in what it calls underserved communities. The HEROES program will run through the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. HEROES stands for Healthcare Rewards to Achieve Improved Outcomes. Here with how it will all work, the program manager, Dr. Darshak Sangavi. Dr. Sangavi, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I want to read a sentence from the description of this program. HEROES aims to trial and validate a radically different approach to creating preventive health care incentives in the health market. What does that mean? I've been a physician for almost 20 years now, and I'm really proud of the work I do and, and many of my colleagues. But think about how we give health care in this country. You know, we wait until people have symptoms or some kind of problem. You go see the doctor. The doctor does something, you know, perhaps they'll, you know, give you medications or diagnose you at that point. The bottom line is it's a very reactive system. And the reason it's that way is because it's the way we pay for care. You only get paid when you actually go out there, you seek out that care, and it's often given in clinics or even in much more acute settings. Now, if there's one thing we've learned in healthcare, it's that we get what we pay for. As a physician, I know I care an enormous amount about my patients, but it's inevitable that the incentives that are set up also change the ways in which we give care. So broadly speaking, if you think about care in our country, we should be really proud of the care we give. The challenge is that that it's really weighted towards acute sort of high intensity care when people are already having problems. You think about the fact that we don't have great prenatal care, and yet when women sort of get critically ill, that's when the system springs into action. We don't do a great job with sort of thinking about, well, how are we going to prevent heart disease and stroke? But the minute you have that, you get access to some of the greatest care around. What our program wants to do is to sort of flip those incentives on their heads. And so we want to create a system where innovating around prevention, it's not only the right thing to do, but it also becomes the smart thing to do. And you mentioned in the program, that is, the underserved communities, because there's lots of great preventive care if you're in upper Manhattan, if you're in the canyons of Rodeo Drive, the affluent areas of the country, there are health plans that pay for preventive medicine. You get covered for a couple of annual visits to check up and so forth. Yes. Not the case yes. for those that don't have access to that type of plan. There's certainly an incredibly important sort of trend we've seen is that when you look at where you live, your zip code and your income often determines how long you're going to live and how healthy you are. There's no reason that should be the case, but it has to do with the ways in which we've set up the system. So you're absolutely right that part of our program and what we're trying to do is to create an incentive and a way in which we care for Americans that doesn't depend as much on those things of like where you live and how much money you happen to make and to create that sort of accountability so that we truly create better health outcomes for everybody. All right. And how will the program, the HEROES program, actually go about doing this? So the key innovation is that maybe uh, sort of using sort of the terms of business and economics, we are going to create an incentive to actually buy outcomes at geographic scale. 
Now, what does that really mean? Well, think about it this way. Let's take one of the potential outcomes we'll look at, which is the rate of opioid overdoses. You know, we know that opioids are a major crisis, one of the leading causes of death for young people in the United States. And think about what we do now. You know, we wait till sort of people have overdoses. You kind of go out there, you treat them, but we don't do a great job. Only 25% of individuals, even after they have an overdose and go to an emergency room, I mean, think about that. You've actually overdosed. They brought you to the ER. Only 25% of them actually get evidence-based care to actually develop a long-term path to recovery. And why is that? Well, that's because nobody is accountable for that entire community. So the HEROES program, for example, we're going to do this for four outcomes and get comment on that initially. But what we're going to do is an organization could say, look, we're going to take this area. Literally, they're going to draw a line around a population. So they'll say these half million people or, you know, or more, I'm going to be responsible for their rates of opioid overdoses. Doesn't matter who you are, where you live, who your insurer is, but you'll be responsible for them. We at ARPA-H then, this is the magic. We will then actually create a payment program to say, well, if you can lower the rate of overdoses, and we're going to measure it, you know, almost in real time, you get paid for that for the entire population. So in other words, for the first time for a whole population, we create a business case and incentive to buy that outcome. Now, what that'll do is then it'll create an incentive for kind of innovation. Well, how are we going to get to that whole population? Are we going to get to the community? Are we going to move outside the clinic? All the kinds of things that our innovators can do to then truly address the need to that whole population. We are speaking with Dr. Darshak Sangavi. He is a program manager at ARPA-H. And what types of organizations will be eligible to do this? Because, frankly, it sounds ambitious. Well, we need all the help and creativity we can get. So what we're looking for is we want to move outside the just the traditional types of healthcare deliverers, doctors, clinics, nurses, physical therapists. So these can be larger provider systems. It can be early stage technology or startup companies. They can be nonprofits. And in the best case scenario, we would get consortia where they would sort of voluntarily come together and apply as a team because this really is a team sport. We also want to unlock sort of the private sector's ability to truly innovate here. So our only recommendation is that the primary applicant, what we call health accelerators, can't be a federal or state agency as the primary. What types of incentives are available to these organizations or consortia get hundreds of thousands, millions, billions? I mean, how much money is behind all of this? (laughs) Yeah, uh, so... What we're doing is uh, we have used our you know, modeling and we've kind of looked at our data. And what we've done is we've set targets that we believe will generate realistically about $60 million of societal value in each of these areas. So, for example, you know, we've set a target. If you choose, say, severe obstetrical complications, you know, we all talk about maternal mortality. We believe that we can reduce that by about 20 percent in an area. And that'll generate $60 million of value. And that's a lot of value for people. And it's not just money, but behind that are real lives. So we will pre-purchase in each region $15 million. And because we want to make this sustainable, we are going to preference areas where others also step up to supplement us. 
like, for example, healthcare payers, philanthropy, employers, everybody who benefits at about a two to one match. That's what we're shooting for. And so it'll be about a $45 million pot of money that can be earned. So that's sort of the incentive for organizations to hit those metrics. And what is the baseline time period? Because if you're going to, say, reduce fentanyl deaths or reduce yeah. obstetric complications, wow. you know, how do you measure that and over what period of time? Yeah, this will be the year where we're going to sort of have people apply. And then the performance period will be starting in the first quarter of next year. And it's going to be a three-year program. We actually believe that these are all urgent issues. And most importantly, we already know what to do around, say, opioid overdoses or obstetrical complications. It is not a mystery. So what we'd like to do is to truly create that incentive for rapid improvements. As I said, 25% of people are getting evidence-based care. We don't need to wait three years to get people into better care. An enormous number of women, when they're hospitalized for childbirth, they're exposed to a system that's not doing the things that need to be done to prevent complications. Again, we know what to do. We don't need to wait as long. So our hope is that by creating this incentive, we'll accelerate the adoption of that innovation in a way that's truly accountable. And you mentioned there are four areas. Where are they? So the four areas are, and we chose these because we want this to be an American program. We want there to be something in here for almost every age group and every geography. So we intentionally chose outcomes that sort of span that. So those are, as I mentioned, severe obstetrical complications, obviously a big issue. Mentioned opioid overdoses, um, you know, affects generally younger people, a certain geographic distribution, and then risk of heart attack and stroke, you know, slightly older population, and finally, alcohol-related health harms. So those are the four outcomes. What we're doing right now, and this very moment, people can go online and let us know which of those outcomes they're most interested in pursuing. We've put all four out there. We're going to collect sort of feedback. And the initial program is going to sort of really zero in on two of those outcomes. And then we will potentially add other outcomes in the future. But we want people's feedback about where they think the energy really is. And how will you choose the geographical areas? So we want a program, as I said, that looks like America. And you pointed out, you know, we want to get to areas where historically we have needed to invest more. So I'll say two things. The first is that a requirement for the program is that an organization will have to choose a geographic area, and it has to be a contiguous geographic area, where the outcome is worse than the national average. We want people to sort of take on areas that where at least there's some challenge. It's not already doing great. The second thing is that we will also really think about that distribution. We want to have like rural areas represented. We want to have areas that have really kind of diverse populations as well. We will not be happy if there's a program that's just sort of concentrated, say, on the coast or only in the Midwest, but rather something which truly looks like it's a national program. That means that it's open to anyone anywhere at this point. Who will make these decisions within ARPA-H? We are hoping, first of all, that right now we have a letter of interest period. So as you said, anybody can sort of let us know they're interested. 
What we're going to do is we are also going to have a, an in-person and hybrid event. We call them Proposers Days. People are invited to join us in Washington, D.C. on February 13th and 14th to meet the team, to meet each other. How is this supposed to work? You know, and you can attend hybrid as well if it's difficult to get in person and you get that information. We're going to take that feedback and then release a formal and full solicitation. That's our fancy term for like the application process in early April. I would emphasize one of the great things about ARPH is we don't do stuff the way government usually works. In other words, the application process is going to be short, maybe eight or 10 pages through an abstract tells what do you want to do. That is not how government usually works because that signals that we want to be open to organizations that you know don't have tons of lobbyists and hire grant writers and all that. That's what we're looking for. So when they come in and answer your question, we will look at that. That's where we'll have a team of government folks that will sort of score each of those along all those criteria, and then we'll come back and then solicit full applications for the program from those organizations. And finally, are you working with HRSA? Because that organization, your sister organization in HHS, has hundreds of care facilities in those very places you might be concerned with. Yeah. HRSA, for those who are not familiar, federally qualified health centers. And there's even more than that. There's Indian health services. There's Medicaid programs. There's opioid treatment facilities. So What we're doing is we're trying to bring all the pieces of government together. Not only, as you said, are there clinics that serve these locations, but we also need to make sure we're bringing along the business case. We've been working very closely with our colleagues at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Let's make sure we do that in collaboration. The Centers for Disease Control, you know, they've thought a lot about public health over the past couple of years. NIH has made investments in a number of technologies as well. So we're trying to pull them together and along But keep in mind, we're there really at the service of our private sector partners. So we stand ready to help them. But what we're doing is by creating this incentive, we want these communities to sort of rise up. They know their communities best. They're going to sort of pick and choose. We'll make sure all these things are available. They're the ones that will be accountable. They're the ones that are going to get the rewards from the program. And a personal question for you, ARPA-H program managers come from outside. It's a temporary type of position. Clearly, you're passionate about delivering health care, and so you don't want to stay in the government, likely. Well, maybe you do for the rest of your career. Will you be around long enough to see the three-year outcomes of some of the grants, essentially? Yeah, I I sure hope so. So this is actually my third stint in government. Many, many years ago, I was a pediatrician on the Navajo Reservation before I trained as a pediatric cardiologist. I then spent a couple years actually as a group director in the Obama administration at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation developing several nationwide programs. And then I spent time also in the private sector as an executive at uh, large payer provider organizations and even an international company. So this is a three-year term we're appointed to, and we can be re-up once. So my goal is to be here to make sure that we execute this. The good news is that we've got an amazing team. So, you know, who knows where things go, but we believe that ARPA-H and our programs are here to stay, and we're in it for the long haul as individuals, but importantly as an organization as well. And do you hope to, at some point before you hang it up, be able to place a stethoscope on a tiny chest again? I do. The good news, and again, this is the other thing about ARPA-H, it's an amazing place to be for somebody who wants to make real change because we're flexible. I mentioned we're flexible in terms of how we engage people, how people apply. It's just different. 
I also, I may mention, I'm a pediatric cardiologist. Um, at ARPA-H, they've allowed me to still see patients um, occasionally. So I still take call one weekend a month. So the good news is I still get to put that stethoscope on baby's chest every now and then. Dr. Darshak Sangavi is a program manager at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health and a pediatric cardiologist. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts. 
uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.